Thank you, Parker. It's always nice when we have uh, young men who are willing to, uh, to share and to participate in our, our worship uh, together. If you're uh, visiting with us, we're thankful to have you uh, with us. If you take a moment and fill out uh, a visitor's form and uh, pass that over to a neighbor, we'd be uh, just thankful to have a record of your uh, attendance with us this morning. Uh, we are going to be studying out of Mark chapter 6, and so if you have your Bibles, you can begin uh, turning there for our study together. Uh, there's a story told of a man who uh, was a salesman, a shoe salesman who was uh, sent over to Africa to sell shoes. As soon as he got off the plane, he was very dejected and very upset, and he bemoaned the fact and said to himself, nobody here wears shoes. Got on the next flight and he went home. The company decided they would send over their top shoe salesman, and when he got off of the plane, he looked and with excitement and with anticipation said, nobody here wears shoes, and began to sell an awful lot of shoes. There is a huge difference, not just in what you see, but in how you perceive what it is that you see. One of the things that we'll find this morning as we look at Mark chapter 6 is there are very different ways that you can see other people. The first, not from our specific uh, section of the text this morning, but from earlier in uh, Mark chapter 6, we find the story of Herod. And one of the things we learn of Herod in terms of how he sees others, he believes others exist to serve you. How do you relate to other people? You get what you can and when you can get it. The first meal that we find in Mark chapter 6 is Herod's birthday party. Herod, much like the people in his culture, decide that whenever you're going to have a meal served, you invite those who are the who's who of society. So that when you're ever in a bind or when you ever have a need, that they will repay you. And so he has this great banquet, and in that banquet he has his own little show of generosity where he offers up to half of his kingdom to Herodias' daughter. He tells her to ask whatever she wishes. Of course, she asks for the head of John the Baptist. And then we see this egregious use of power when the king orders a soldier to go and to bring in John's head. We've been told by Mark that uh, Herod did not want to do it, but he essentially does it to save face because he cares how he looks in the eyes of others. And that's one way that we can relate to other people. We can use others for our own ends for our own advancement, and therefore they become people who exist to serve us. The second way we see people relating to others in Mark chapter 6 is the disciples who tend to see others as annoyances. This rule of life becomes don't let them get in your way to get you from what you want. You see, then other people become a commodity or they are seen in a utilitarian way. We've got to be honest, when it comes to how I see people, this is most often the way I naturally see them. When I'm driving in traffic and I have to wait through the light more than one or two lights, I see everyone else who has caused that traffic as annoyances to my day. When I want to buy a loaf of bread and there are five or six people in front of me, they are not seen by me as other people made in the image of God, but simply as annoyances, people who get in my way when I want to buy bread. And have you ever felt that way, that people just simply get in the way? And that seems to be the way the disciples have seen others. And so when it comes time to eat, their recommendation to Jesus is send them away. Because once the annoying people are out of the way, they can now finally have an opportunity 
to eat. But there is a third way of seeing others, the way, of course, that is exemplified by Jesus, where he sees others with compassion. Jesus' rule of life becomes, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in the process of this feeding miracle in Mark 6, we will find that this is the way that Jesus wants to teach his disciples to act and to function as well. See Mark chapter 6, verse 34, when Jesus sees the crowds, he has compassion for them. This word compassion in the gospel is only ever used to refer to Jesus. But it is often this aspect or this element that Jesus is calling all of us into. It is a reality that whatever is happening in your heart will affect how you see, how you relate to, and how you treat other people. And Jesus, because of His compassion, is able to see that they are like sheep without a shepherd. See, one of the things that we have noticed as we have gone through Mark is that Jesus is clearly a different type of leader than the leaders that they have seen and interacted with. We found the leaders first in Mark 2 when Jesus heals the paralytic and He forgives them of, their, of His sins. And instead of there being a celebration or instead of there being a party, there is a what? There is a debate over whether Jesus really has the authority to do that. We find them then in the house of Levi, where there are many tax collectors and sinners, and there is disappointment from the leadership that Jesus would interact with people like that. When the disciples do not fast, the leaders are there to police their behavior, to tell them what ought to be happening and what should be happening. On the Sabbath, when the disciples pluck grain, they are accused of breaking the Sabbath, and there is no regard for human need. There is only regard for the obedience of law. And then when the man is healed on the Sabbath, they turn it again, not into a celebration, but into a debate. And they insinuate that somehow God would be happier if the Sabbath was kept and this man remained with the withered hand. And Jesus knows that people living under a situation like that, it does not lead to freedom, it does not lead to life, it does not lead to vitality, but instead the soul withers under leaders like that. And Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. You see, whenever Jesus goes into these remote places and people will travel long distances to be with them, He recognizes how desperately they are longing for a compassionate leader. And so we find this disenfranchised group, having never been cared for, having never been loved, they come to Jesus because He is one who both loves them and cares for them. And then, of course, in the miracle, we find that Jesus highlights the way that He functions as the Good Shepherd. His view and His action towards others is unique, and it also becomes the ideal way for us to relate to others. You see, we probably know this Old Testament text well, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then out of Mark's text, then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down into groups on the green grass, and all ate and were filled. You see, the point of the feeding is for Jesus to say, this is who I am. I am the good shepherd who was spoken about who was anticipated, who was looked forward to. But there is a fascinating part of this story in the feeding of the 5,000 that we often call Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
But as we'll look closely at the text this morning, we'll come to find that it seems as though Jesus wants to highlight the relationship between him and the disciples so that the title should instead be, Through Jesus, the disciples feed the 5,000. See, if we begin in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, we see this term reference to these disciples. They are called the apostles. This is only one of two times in Mark that he will call them the apostles, which clearly means those who have been sent. This is a link back to earlier in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus sends them out two by two. And when he sends them, he gives them what? He gives them authority to cast out demons. And there is the recognition then that all that will be done as those sent by Jesus will do it based on the power and the authority of Jesus. And so this uh, narrative here in Mark 6.30 begins with them coming back and they are sharing all that they had done and taught. And the question is, why was the mission successful? The mission, of course, is successful not because of the nature or character of these men, but the nature and character of the Messiah who sent them and who also empowered them. We come to find a movement and a shift in how Jesus is seeking to do His work and His ministry, no longer directly, but now through His disciples. And so now we find these disciples looking for a place of peace and quiet. And so they recognize and see the problem. And the problem is simply this. In Mark 6, 35, the hour is now very late. It is fairly soon that we will find that the 7-Elevens will close, McDonald's drive through will no longer be accessible, and you're looking around and realizing we've got some awfully hungry people, including the apostles themselves. And so they then, because they recognize the problem, they then come up with a proposed solution, which is always the thing you want to do if you're a leader, is don't just tell me the problem, but give me a solution. So here they come, ready as they might with a solution. Jesus, send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. Now, let me ask you honestly, if you were on a leadership committee or a leadership team and someone identified this problem and offered this solution, wouldn't you say, that's a great solution? And yet we come to find that Jesus himself suggests another solution. And this is Jesus' solution. You give them something to eat. Now, if you were grading better solutions and worse solutions, which of these two solutions would overpass the other? Would you say, I vote for the you give them something to eat solution, or would you vote for the send them away so they can buy something for themselves to eat? Jesus' solution seems so not practical, so not possible, so not reasonable. And so the disciples are then once again handed back this solution, this attempted work of Jesus. You see, we're finding once again that Mark is seeking to readdress and in fact to redefine the typical pattern here. That those who are sent out are sent out with the authority of Jesus to continue doing what Jesus has done. See, here's the standard miracle format in Mark so far. Somebody, typically someone with faith, will approach Jesus and then what does Jesus do? He does a miracle. That's been how it's gone all through Mark. But now in Mark 6, we see a different pattern developing. Somebody comes and approaches Jesus. 
There is a need for food. And then Jesus now will do what? He will look to his disciples. Jesus, it seems as though, beginning in Mark 6, will seek to do his work through, with, or alongside the disciples. Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. He is constantly wanting this to be returned into the hands and into the work and into the responsibility of the disciples. And so the disciples then, they they recognize Jesus is trying to put this back to them. And so they're going to now point out the problem with Jesus' solution. And the problem is simply this, that um, are we, that I think I read as the disciples, are the disciples, are we to buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? There is a play on the word of giving and a play on the word of buying where the disciples are saying they should be buying their food and Jesus is saying you should be giving their food. And are we really going to spend? And we don't know whether there was in someone's pocket this large sum of money, half a year's wages as Parker's text read. But are we really to give these people something to eat? See, they cannot seem to find the necessary resources The disciples are overwhelmed at the magnitude of what it is that Jesus is calling them to do. And they're not the first people in the Bible to be such. Moses, when he was leading the people in Numbers 11, 13, said, Where am I to get meat to give all these people? By human standards and by human wisdom, Jesus' solution does not seem like a solution at all, does it? And yet, this is the offer that Jesus has. You give them something to eat. Jesus will redirect them. And he will then tell them to go and to look and see. He says, well, how many loaves do you have? He's shifting them once away from this scarcity mindset. This idea that looks at what is lacking and what is insufficient, which clearly they've been able to identify. And he begins to ask them, what do you possess? What ability, what resources, what things do you have? And once again, he has included them very much in the process of this miracle, hoping to shift to the abundance mindset away from the scarcity mindset that they possess. And so they take inventory and they come back and they say, we have five and two fish, which the translation of that means not very much. In fact, Andrew in John's Gospel says it this way, but what are they among so many people? And then, verse 39, Jesus ordered them to get all the people to sit in groups on the green grass. And so once again, Jesus is bringing the disciples into the process of the miracle. Jesus himself does not order the people, but he asks the disciples to do that. And then we have the miracle in verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave it to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And I don't know how this all played out or how that worked after the prayers. There now this huge amount of food or is it kind of like the widow's oil where they go and they take a load and they come back and say, oh, surely we're done by now. But no, there's more bread. So they go and they take that. The reality is for most of the 5,000 people who are sitting in circles, they probably don't even know the source of the bread. 
But the disciples themselves are very aware of where this bread is coming from and the source of it. It is very clear that the source and the power and the authority is Jesus's. And the ability to feed is then transferred to the disciples and they recognize that Jesus has multiplied those gifts and offerings. So the miracle, first of all, is to teach who Jesus is. He is the good shepherd who does and who will provide for his people. That's why, as Jeff read these texts of confusion that we'll find in Mark, the confusion is about, first of all, the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? But the text is also about, the miracle is also about Jesus' desire to do now his work through his disciples. But the question that I want us to spend a little time thinking about this morning is why did the disciples need to find something to supply? Why not, like every other miracle, did Jesus say they're hungry, boom, here's food, where instead he continues to turn it back to them and to ask them, what do you currently possess? We do know from Mark that when God does things, he can multiply things exponentially. He did it with the seed in Mark chapter 4, that one seed that produced 30, 60, and 100 times. He did it with that small seed, the mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, that then multiplies and grows and becomes like this mustard shrub. So in order to answer the question about why the disciples need to provide something, it's important that we talk for a moment about God's own self-limiting. God's self-limiting is the notion that God may choose not to access certain aspects or elements of His power. You say, well, no, God will always access that. It'd be like a a multi-billionaire who has a son who's kind of a, a rebel, and he goes off to school, and he doesn't go to any classes, and he doesn't study, and afterwards, Dad says, I'm not paying for any more of your school. That's a self-limiting choice. It does not mean the father is no longer capable or able to. He's just simply making a choice that until you begin to do your work in school, I am not paying for it anymore. And so the question is, can God or does God ever limit himself? And I think that the biblical answer is yes. I think, in fact, we've already seen it in Mark. Mark chapter 4, we find the seed is powerful, and yet the seed will submit to what? To the context of the soil. If the human heart is ready to receive this seed, it will produce. But if a human heart is not, God does not overpower or overwhelm the human's choice. He honors it and he respects it. We see it again in Mark chapter 5 verse 17. When Jesus casts out the many demons and the people tell him to leave. If it were me, I'd say, try and make me. But instead Jesus submits and he gets into the boat and he leaves. We've seen it in the miracles where the miracles are based on the faith of people. Mark chapter 3, verse 34, Jesus said to the woman with the flow of blood, Your faith has made you well. And as he prepares to go to the house of Jairus, he says, Do not fear, only believe. And then following those two stories, we find that Jesus, when he enters into his hometown, Mark 6, 5, he could do no deed of power there. And we come to find because it's of the lack of faith. God is self-limiting. Where there is no faith that is present, God honors and respects that lack of faith. So we find that the human agent can hinder kingdom work or can participate in its ongoing growing and flourishing. So Jesus does self-limit himself. 
in relationship to the participation and cooperation of those who are members of his kingdom family. So the question becomes, what if God has chosen to limit himself and will only use the resources freely offered by people? The resources of time, the resources of money, the resources of faith, and the resources of talent. I'm thinking about this like a sourdough bread which requires a starter kit. Oh, God could in all his power and infinite majesty just skip the starter kit stage. And yet it seems in Mark's gospel that Jesus says, unless you provide a starter kit, the process of multiplication may not happen here. And if this is true, the implications, I think, are staggering. We will often say something like, when we take the contribution, God doesn't need our money. Or perhaps we could say, God doesn't need us to spread the good news message. He could do it himself. But what if God has said, I am asking your participation. And whatever you offer and whatever you give, I will multiply it and make it something more significant. But find what you have, no matter how small, no matter how limited, and offer that in the service of the kingdom, and I will multiply it into something much greater. See, Jesus' ministry has always been about handing on His ministry to His disciples. And we are those who have received that ministry. We don't do the ministry on our own. We do it through Christ, but yet He empowers us. Now, it is entirely possible this theology can go off the rails and you begin to think, oh, so you're saying that in God's plan, I'm kind of like the key factor or feature here. God is not dependent on us to do what He needs to do, but yet He can choose to treat us just as we are, like tools and vessels, which are offered up in service of the kingdom. And when we offer ourselves as tools and vessels, God can multiply in ways we could never imagine. It is Teresa of Avila who said, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which He looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet through which He walks to do His good. Yours are the hands through which He blesses the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, yours are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. What if God said, I'm waiting for your participation. And through your participation, I will multiply every work and effort. And I think all of this points to the importance of what I'm calling the ministry of smallness. I wonder what God would do if you gave but the smallest act of faith and the smallest offering and asked God to multiply that in the ways that He desired and in the ways that He wished. See, one of the things that fascinated me when we did our Sunday night interviews is how much difference the smallest thing can make. A word of kindness, a warm handshake, an encouraging hug. I once saw a sign that said, Everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. See, the way that God has instilled the change that He's seeking in this world is through the simple, through the little, 
and through the small acts of everyday life. See, Jesus, I think, is encouraging us to ask, what do you have? Because he knows our tendency is more likely to say, but what we don't have and what we lack. And when we find what we have, we say, but what is it among so many? But the shift that Jesus is calling for us is to recognize, first of all, that he is our greatest asset and our greatest resource and our source of authority and our source of power. And even the smallest gift then placed in the hands of Jesus has the potential to multiply in the ways that the Father desires. See, I wonder what Jesus could do with a kind word like even just a please or a thank you or a nice job. And the ways that Jesus could multiply that in someone's life. See, I think before we learn to give the big things, we just need to learn to give the little things. What we have. And over a long period of time, we may come to find God's faithfulness in using those things. See, we have a lot of older members in our congregation who have loved faithfully, who have worked faithfully, who have encouraged faithfully, and God multiplies all of those small acts they've done over a lifetime for His good and for His glory. We've got loving mothers who wake up in the middle of the night to feed a baby, and sometimes who head off to work to help pay the bills, who care for their husbands, and I wonder what God will do with those small loving acts. We have loving and hardworking fathers who mentor their kids and encourage their kids. And it's not newspaper worthy, but I wonder what God would do with those small acts of faithfulness and kindness. We have grandparents who invest themselves in their grandkids' lives. And I wonder what God would do with those small acts of faithfulness. We have people who care for the elderly, who visit the sick in the hospital. And I wonder what God would do with those small acts of faithfulness. We have good-hearted people who take their Friday nights to have Bible studies with people in the jail. And I wonder what God would do with those small acts of kindness. So I have a simple encouragement for you this week. I encourage you to participate in every day in at least one unselfish and unexpected act of kindness or generosity. And then say, God, here's my, my five loaves. Here's my two fish. And if you choose to multiply it, that's up to you, but I will give you what I can. And I think that leads nicely into why we withheld doing the contribution until after the sermon, is a recognition that what we are doing every week is offering even sometimes the smallest gift. And we're asking God to bless that gift and to use it as a resource in His kingdom, to bless it as He wishes, to multiply it as He wishes, because we know if God desires, He can multiply it exponentially. Maybe sometimes you don't put anything in the contribution plate because you'll say, you might look in the bulletin and say, here's the budget, and you say, what is my one dollar amongst so many other things? But I want you to hear that word of Jesus, well, what do you have? And then we offer it, no matter how large or small, and we trust in the God who knows how to multiply more than we do. So let's take a moment. We'll continue our sermon in just a moment, but I want us to take a moment. I will pray, and then after the prayer, we'll have the... Uh, uh, the gentleman come forward and pass out the basket for we're going to give our offering and contribution. So let's pray together. Father, we confess to you uh, how easily we can be overwhelmed by the magnitude of the responsibility of being kingdom people in this world. That task seems insurmountable at times, 
It certainly seems beyond what, what any one household can do. Our resources seem so meager and so limited. And yet, Father, we've encountered Jesus Christ in a text that shows us that you can multiply even the smallest gift. Help us now as we give, to give faithfully and to give joyfully, but to give with expectation that if you so will, that you can multiply this for the sake of your kingdom. Father, may we be faithful as we give this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the servers to come forward and they'll hand out the contribution plates. So your homework is simple. Each day, this coming week, may your eyes be open and your heart be soft to see and to do one unselfish and unexpected act of kindness and generosity. It doesn't matter how little, because we believe in a God who multiplies even the smallest gift. So a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And this week as we enter into the world to be the people of God, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As we passed around the plates, that was an opportunity to offer a, a part of, of who we are and a part of uh, of a gift, but the greatest gift that God is seeking in each and every one of our lives is the gift of ourselves, our entire personhood, our heart, mind, body, soul, strength. And so baptism becomes a way that we offer ourselves as that first offering. Uh, so this morning, if there is somebody who is ready to give themselves as that first offering, uh, as, as little and as, as insignificant as it is, we know that God can do wonderful things no matter how small the gift and offering. Perhaps you've been struggling this week with treating people with the compassion of Christ. But if you have any kind of a need, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be back there. I'd be happy to encourage you, I pray with you, or just minister to you in any way that we can. Let's go ahead and stand together and sing.